Welcome to turning a moment into a movement. I am Jay Love, and I represent the justice for Gerard movement. Gerard is my son who was wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he didn't do, innocent and in prison. And so from that journey uh, with Gerard, it birthed this movement to turning a moment into a movement. And we come here every Friday at 6 p.m., to educate our community, families, and loved ones about wrongful convictions, injustice, um, over sentencing, every, anything to do with injustice, that's what we're here to talk about. So I'm glad that you are here. Thank you for joining us. We have a, um, a wonderful lineup for today. I am excited about this conversation about um, prison reform or prison abolitionists. Um, I think um, have just having this conversation, it will open our minds to um, a new way of thinking and, um, and offer a conversation that we can extend to others. So thank you for joining us. And I'm going to bring on our panel and then we're going to introduce our guests. Hi, Reverend Tia. Tia, you muted. <laughs> I'm up here just talking away. Hello, everybody. Oh, my goodness. It is a wonderful joy to be here today. Good to see you, Jay, and great to be here on Turning a Moment 
into a movement. And, you know, I'm just grateful for what you're doing, what you've done and how you change things around for your son, but not just your son only for many people who have decided to get engaged and begin to make decisive decisions about change. And that change, of course, begins within, it begins with us, it begins now. I am a minister over one of the many ministers at Transforming Love Community, where love is transforming lives. And I'm also um, a doctoral candidate. Uh, and But most of the time, I am working with people with mental health and mental health and children. And I'm excited about, you know, what I'm doing right now. Uh, you know, the, when you think about we are not, we are not all of these positions. The reality of who we are is actually undefinable. And mm-hmm. I want us to know that, that God has called us and God is calling each and every one of us to take a stand for righteousness today. And I stand with you and all of the people on the platform in doing that uh, at this moment. Thank you so much. Thank you, Reverend Tia. Um, I'm so grateful for you for, you know, joining me on this movement. It's been, you know, um, I appreciate, you know, everything that you do. And so I wanted to tell you that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love you. I love you too. Hello, Attorney Hugo Mack. <laughs> Hi. We can't hear you. You can't hear me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, we're grateful that you're here, Attorney Hugo Mack. Normally he introduces himself and let us know who he is and what he's his he does. And we're gonna come back to Attorney Hugo Mack because mm-hmm. We can't hear you. <laughs> All right. I don't All know right. <laughs> what happened there, but attorney Hugo Matt, we can't hear you. Hi, Allie. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> We're great. How about yourself? We having some technical issues going on. <laughs> you can't hear Attorney Hugo Matt right now, but introduce yourself and tell us what it is that you do. My name is Alexandria. I'm with Michigan Liberation as well as Accountability for Dearborn. I'm a community activist in the metro area. Um, you know, mainly my work focuses on. Uh, mental health and criminal justice, also a behavior therapist and coordinator, and happy to be here. I'm glad that you're here, Allie. So um, attorney Hugo Mack hasn't came in yet, so he's working on his mic. So um, while attorney Hugo Mack is working on his mic, we're going to talk to one of our guests. Hi. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Want to make sure. <laughs> How are you today? I am excellent. Thank you. It is a, a pleasure to be here. Um, again, this is my second time on the show. Yeah. Um, I 
honor this moment. I'm humbled by the invitation and I am in awe of how this has grown. Your platform, uh, your rollout, the presentation, it is absolutely exceptional. And I applaud the work that you're doing. I follow you uh, daily uh, and I'm just very inspired uh, by the work that you've been doing and that you've, even though Gerald is home, I, I remember you were doing this before he came home. Yeah. And the fact that he's home and you're still doing this for the other sons and daughters who are on the other side of the wall. I honor you as a mother, as a, as a queen, and I really appreciate uh, what you're doing in this, in this digital space, which is, if I could use the coin, the, the, the new frontier, if you will. This is where the work needs to happen yeah in this digital space so thank you i appreciate you and all did you do um the notes from the village awesome Bless awesome you. work thank you um, and we're going to bring in our next guest hi <laughs> hi ken kenneth nixon hi how are you Great. I'm um, so glad that you are here. Introduce yourself. My name is Kenneth Nixon. I'm an exoneree from Wayne County. I did 15 years and nine months incarcerated for a crime that I didn't commit. It is like a full circle moment you being here with us this evening because I met your mom as I was um, trying to advocate for my son, uh, we met at, um, I met your mom at um, UD Mercy at a class, at a, a workshop actually. And um, she, your mother gave me so much inspiration, you know, just talking to her and her um, telling me a lot of things that she had already been doing for you. So I am so honored that you are here with us this evening. Um, <laughs> so welcome to um, joining us on Turning a Moment into a Movement. We are so happy that you are here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. <laughs> yes. So tonight we're going to talk about um, prison reform versus prison as abolition, abolition. And um, I'm so glad that um, Darnell Ishmael is here because that's kind of your lane. So, <laughs> and um, also at Ali, because you um, have been doing a lot of work with um, reform as well. So um, Ali, seeing that you're here, we'll let you start to talk about uh, what is prison reform um, for you? For me, man, uh, prison reform, I feel like it's so, so many things. Um, prison reform creating means to me creating actual structures that rehabilitate people um, right. and, and not structural structures that dismantle people. For me, it's about mental health first and self-care. There needs to be 
there needs to be facilities that focus primarily on mental health when people are incarcerated, that focus on making them better people. And right now there's not that. I mean, as we know, the facilities now are focused on, you know, keeping people contained and not allowing them to expand their mind and thinking and become greater. And I want, for me, for me, uh, prison reform is creating structures that do that, that make people better than when they went in, mm-hmm. make them come out an even greater person and come out wise, come out happy. And the exact opposite is happening. Um, and there's many ways to start that process. And there's a lot of work we know needs to be done to start that. And honestly, I feel like it starts with us. Absolutely. So, Ali, I know you're doing work with um, um, Michigan Liberation as well as uh, Accountability Dearborn. And I know you guys, um, and I joined you guys on some uh, one of the platforms you did about um, abolition work. And um, could you speak to that? Yes. Um, yes. So we did four data town halls. And the reason we did this is because we, it's because of the data we gathered through uh, Freedom of Information at request we put in with the city of Dearborn. And we requested 10 years of data from the police department showing um, citations, arrests, um, you know, cost of service as well over the last 10 years. And with that, you know, we, we have so many findings and we felt a need to share it with the public mm-hmm. and make that information known. So that resulted in four data town halls uh, and in um, having Jay Love there was great and amazing and just having her shed light on her experience at, at it made it even more rich um, and having others share their experience too. So our last one focused on prison abolition. Um, and basically when people hear abolition, they think, of course, why do you want to dismantle the prison and let they, this, the words verbatim, let people run free that are going to hurt me and harm me and kill me. These crazy people, these are, these are the different things. There's people that deserve to be there. They're going to kill everybody. If you look at the chances of you getting killed right now, you'd be scared. Mm-hmm. if you knew the actual statistics. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be any different to see a system recreated and in, in providing better resources. Like nothing, it has just, when you think about like just dismantling something, we know even if someone wanted to just dismantle something, it's not just going to dismantle and then people are just going to run free, <laughs> free. We know that's not how it works. What abolition means is, you know, dismantling the current structure that is harming people, creating a new one. And with everything that includes, whether dismantle, like abolish, um, defund, all those things, what it really means is get us away from, you know, injustices and move us towards justice, move us towards a system that allows rehabilitation. So it's not just abolish and then nothing happens. It means that there's going to be a road to a road to a better world like mm-hmm. a role to better um, 
not prisons is what not what I'm gonna call it, rehabilitation centers. Right. Away from prisons and towards rehabilitation centers. Right. And that is gonna include a process. So when you hear abolish prisons, it means abolish prisons and create a process to move us towards rehabilitation centers. Right. Because the first prison we need to abolish is the prison of our minds. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we're thinking, the way um, we're um, been programmed to think about um, criminal justice and reform. So, yeah, like it, I, I've been on, you know, talking to different politicians and things. Um, and I've said things like, okay, what about our mental health professionals being called, you know, in these scenarios instead of the police when these things are not involving them. Mm-hmm. And it was immediate wall up when I even asked that. Uh, and, and, and I'm, I don't understand why there's a wall. They're essential and they're needed and that's their role. Um, it, it, it's almost like the police is untouchable and it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around, but um, yeah, it, all it means is us creating a better system right. and making ourselves, separating ourselves from that current system that is racist and harming people. Right. So Attorney Hugo Mack, I see you're back. Yes, I'm sorry. I had to go slap in our police department officers two or three times. So I was <laughs> off for a minute. So I apologize. I'm back now. Introduce yourself, Attorney Hugo Mack, and let us know who you are. <laughs> well, yes. Well, as our guests will soon find out, I'm really not the normal attorney that you might think out in the streets there, okay? You know, and for the edification of our guests, I'm the only criminal defense attorney in the state of Michigan. My office hours are from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. So, you see, so because for me, I, I pride myself on representing the for real people, you know. Uh, some of my contemporaries in law school, they want to represent the rich people that drive over the bridge in fancy cars. I always want to represent the people that sleep under the bridges, you know, in cardboard boxes, you understand? So that's where I've been coming from my entire life. And as a criminal defense attorney, um, I'm proud to wear that, to wear that badge because um, in my life, I know what it means to face a wrongful conviction. I know what it means to come back from nothing. I know what it means to be discriminated against. And I know what it means to face impossible odds. And when I hear Allie, and I'm sure the other guests are going to be talking about the need in terms of prison reform or prison abolishment, as we know it, uh, there's another component to that that makes the discussion extremely important. And I hope to put my, uh, my input in on that. But I'm here, a former candidate for Washtenaw County Prosecuting Attorney, are running on restorative justice, which is based on making the person whole, the the victim whole. Because of the 10 million people in the state of Michigan, if somebody busts out your car window, guess what? It's not the other 10 million of us that have been harmed, only in an abstract sense we've been harmed. You're the one that's been harmed. You're the one that suffered uh, suffered the loss. So I'm a restorative justice advocate that's determining to make the victim whole, Focusing on that and punishment is really a, a secondary back burner situation because punishment can be achieved without giving somebody 40 years in, in prison. So uh, that's who I am. Jay Love can uh, give you my contact information if, if I can be of help to anybody. And I'm 
proud to be on the panel here. <laughs> yes, and your uh, information is on the screen. It's www.hmaclaw.com. And Absolutely. you can reach out to Attorney Hugo Mac, or if you need to reach out to me, I can get you in contact with Attorney Hugo Mac. Thank Much you. Much appreciated. Yes. So let's get back to the conversation of um, that we have for today. Um, what is the difference between prison reform and prison abolition? And I want to go to um, our guest, Darnell Ishmael. Um, greetings, uh, everyone. Uh, the, the difference um, for, for me, when we, when we think of reform, um, if we think of American slavery, and if we concede that Americans, the, the penal system here in America is an extension uh, a reiteration of 400 years plus of American slavery, then we could almost logically deduce that prison itself is slavery reformed. And if prison itself is slavery reformed, then how do we reform it? Mm -hmm. um, I think we have to do the work to go back to the uh, the initial impulse of prison in America, and and to echo some of what uh, Alex was saying earlier, um, it's about refreshing and refurbishing and restoring uh, that person. Not it's not necessarily about punishment. And if we think about when you know back in the 1700s when the Quakers had the moral compass to uh, develop a, 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 a place where people could go and be, and be restored. That, that, that has been lost in many ways. And, and it's, for me, it's kind of like, uh, I lived in San Francisco for a few years and they had a place where I would go, I won't name the, the exact restaurant, but they had a place where they had this sourdough bread from years ago. I mean, it's, it's been around for like decades and decades because they have what they call that starter dough from that was saved from years ago. So the bread today has the starter dough from more than a hundred years ago. Prison is, li is not like that. We don't have the moral starter dough, if you will, the moral compass. We don't have the moral fibers that the Quakers baked into it in its earliest forms. Mm -hmm. It's become industrialized. Very, if, if that happened very quickly if we look at the development of prisons. It, ha it happened very quickly. It, become, it became monetized. Um, it became corrupt. So it doesn't, it's, not, it's not what it was. It's far from any you know, place of morality. Um, so to reform it from what it is today, it's a hard sell. I mm -hmm. was just talking about that. Yeah. Um, people can't make that leap. People think that, as, as she said, oh, they're going to be running, you know, around with me, you know, and, and doing harm to me. 
but we live in a world where there are countries that do not have nearly the prison population that we do. I'll say it this way. We live with other human beings on this planet who have figured out a way to live in a society and have a high quality of life without the aid of what we have as a model of prisons here in America. We've been hooked into thinking that we need prisons and other people in the world have figured out they don't need them. And the higher quality of life in Holland, Sweden, uh, Denmark, other countries, they don't, they don't have these, they don't have what we have. Mm -hmm. So I am a strong advocate for abolition. The, and that's a nice word, dismantling. That's a, um, when I look in the dictionary, there's a word that says destroy. Mm -hmm. And I like that one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stand with that one in terms of abolition. Because if we were talking about slavery today, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use the term, well, how will we dismantle it? Let's, let's, let's take this component off and let's, no, the slaves, but no, let's, we want to be free. And there are people on the other side of the wall who are innocent. There are people on the other side of the wall who have done their penance. There are people on this side of the wall who are still hooked and enslaved because they're tethered to their loved one. And as a society, and I'm speaking from a, a, a moralistic or spiritual standpoint, because I am a doctoral student at the Pacific School of Religion. We in America, our moral compass is gone amok. So we're harming, we're, we're doing harm to ourselves. We're doing harm to the future generation of children by uh, uh, suggesting, more than suggesting, we have we have baked into their own development that prisons are a necessary thing when there are other persons and countries in the world who have they, they've done a dip they've taken a different course with their humanity so i am very much for abolition uh destroy get rid of dismantle and and we maybe need to put a timetable to that i agree it's not just overnight Open up the, just let them go. No, I understand. But we need to set a timetable. Just like when, you know, they're going to destroy a building downtown. They're going to, you know, TNT it and bring it down. Well, they, they let us know. There's a public hearing on all of that. All right. On such and such a date, we're going to get rid of this building. We're going to destroy it. And then they go through the building to make sure nobody's in it. And then they stack it with the TNT, whatever the procedure is. But they let they, they bring that building down, and as as revolutionaries, as reformists, as activists, as abolitionists, as abolitionists, to push the envelope, the envelope to happen in my lifetime, or this needs to happen in the next five years. We need we need to establish and and hold our legislators, make them accountable. Or what something. I don't know. Um, I'm sorry, I, I've talked long enough. I've <laughs> talked long enough. <laughs> I, I do have something to add to what you're saying. Um, yeah, like what what you were saying about how other places how other places are different, different. That really resonates with me. Because I'm thinking about places like Sweden 
And I'm thinking about how their recidivism rate or, or rate of return is down 16, it's down to 16%. And I'm thinking about how the prison population there has decreased since 2004. Then you look at America, right? And you look at, you know, you can look at the information from the, um, from the Department of Justice, from the Federal Department of Justice, like from the president's, all of his, his, his representatives, they all know this. You could look at that and you see that the, uh, there's like 83% of those who went to jail returned at least once in nine years. And I was looking at a report from 2018 from the Department of Justice. And, you know, it was just saying like they were at least arrested once within those nine years. That's not rehabilitation the same thing is happening over again. Your structure does not work. How many times are you going to try the same thing over before you you claim it? Like th that's insanity, right? Like isn't that what we what we say? <laughs> so so you know, there's other things that are being done that are successful. So I don't know why we haven't tried it. You, you know, a lot of me feels like it's because the people that are in charge that have these these positions don't have humanity don't care and you need to have that first before you can do that you have to care about people regardless of where they come from regardless of what they've done i've had discussions with people where i was saying just because they you know they don't deserve death I don't think I don't think I'm just going to dictate you deserve death. And people have argued with me saying that they do because of something they did. Who are you to say that? You know, we have to start looking at humanity. And it, and a lot of me feels like it starts there. If a person doesn't have that, then these kind of structures are going to be created. Right. We need to look at the whole person and not at a system that has been developed to criminalize people mainly because of the color of their skin. You know, I was gonna I was gonna add that the problem, you know, it's it's so systemic uh, because it, it has been gone it's gone on for so long. And you know, I can hear in the back of my mind how people say, well you want change so fast and and you know, but we've been at this, this is 400 years. I, I don't think, I think we are beyond asking, uh, we should be demanding that change happen right now. Uh, the, and the thing is that our minds have been so inundated that in some ways we have taken on the mental capacity of the slave masters. Mm -hmm. So not only, <laughs> not only is the prison system and correctional system based upon um, times when the slaves were initially released in in <laughs> from slavery. It was it was just a translation from one idea to another, but yet the same idea, and that is to criminalize people, um, and and to keep them incarcerated to keep them in bondage whether behind bars or in society they do so with fear tactics 
And to but the sad thing, and 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 I use this is important because this platform is for educational purposes and to get people to first know and then engage. But you can't sit back and and watch these things happen, not realizing what started it, not realizing that you too could have that same mentality, even though you may be African American. Because you don't know Mm -hmm. when you're afraid of your own people, you're afraid of people because of the color of their skin or because they're just not like you. You're afraid. These are fear tactics to be afraid. All of these ideas of being afraid and it comes in so many different structures. There's fear. To the point where people don't even know how to raise their children because they're afraid they're not doing that right. Got to get a book and have somebody tell you how to raise your child. You know, you you don't, you're afraid. You're afraid of, of whether to go to the doctor, whether not to go to the doctor. You're afraid of how to treat your body. Mm-hmm. People are afraid of living. And so we are actually living afraid. And at some time, at some point, it's important to break out of that box and decide I'm not going to be afraid anymore. And I'm going to fight this injustice. I'm going to stand up for what is right. And what does that mean? Like he said earlier, look, hold these people accountable. Hold yourself accountable first and then hold everybody else accountable. They're leaders. And the thing about it is right now we are following leaders who have low self-esteem and who believe in a system of incarceration to meet their own individual 1% need. We Reverend Tia. <laughs> Ken, do you have something to add? Yeah, this is, this is a heavy subject. This is definitely a heavy topic. Um, as, as we all know, um, I was a product of this disruptive system. And I think that a lot of people forget that voting is the most important tool that we'll ever have. I voted for the first time a week ago, 35 years old. You know, we do a lot of ranting and raving and screaming and hollering. You know, we do sit-ins, we do protests. You don't see that at the polls though. And that's something that I learned being inside the system, right? We've got people that are making decisions for us that have never been where we've been. They've never seen the extremes that we've seen. They've never witnessed the horror or you know the violence that we've seen, but they're making decisions for us as if they know what it feels like to be where we are. When in reality, they don't. They know nothing about us except what they see on TV or the stories that they hear in the news media. You know, the reality is, and, you know, I got a lot of flack from a lot of people when I said this, but it's the truth. I don't believe that anybody that makes more than a million dollars a year can speak for me. You've never seen what I've seen. You've never experienced what I've experienced. So how do you feel like you should be able to make decisions for me? You don't know what public school looks like. You don't know what the streets look like. You don't know what the inside of a prison cell looks like. So how can you make a decision for me? How can your decisions affect me 
when you don't know what the consequences of that decision is or what they'll look like five years from now. You know, myself as the chairman of the National Organization of Exonerees, these are things that we're saying. These are things that we're confronting. These are questions that we're asking, right? We're getting opportunities to stand in front of politicians and policymakers, prosecutors all over this country. Doing the right thing has now become sexy. Criminal justice reform is a hot topic right now. And everybody knows it. You know, there's a reason that the term was created progressive prosecutor. There's a reason for that, because people were tired of what was here before, the status quo of what was here before. So how did we beat them? We beat them at the polls. We beat them by putting them out and bringing in people that valued what we value. You know, media itself has become an outlet for people. We wouldn't even know what wrongful convictions were if it weren't for the media. We wouldn't know that, you know, cops were destroying lives if it weren't for the media. It's platforms like this that have changed the way we see criminal justice. Podcasts, movies, radio shows, newspaper articles, magazines. It's the media that has changed the view of how society sees the criminal justice system. Voting is how we win this battle. You want to change something, go to the polls. Complaining about it, every opportunity you get does nothing. It does nothing because they don't care. They don't hear you. It doesn't make sense to them. Just like Alex said, you know, the moment she mentioned, you know, a trigger word, the conversation was over. The person stopped listening. This is the reality of what we're dealing with. So my position and the position of the National Organization of Exonerees is they don't comply, vote them out. They're not going to stand by what's right. Send them home. If you can't get with what people are asking you to do, find another job. Exactly. Exactly. You're about to lose your job. <laughs> we, a mic drop. That is the truth. Yes. <laughs> Attorney Hugo Matt. Once again, technology confronts me. Uh, what, one of the things that I really want to add is, is that, you know, the whole incarceration and racism, it can't be separated, okay? We, we have not had the courage in this nation to deal with incarceration and racism. We have not had the courage, as you see the pushback now, from our critical race theory in schools where they don't want that we simply have not had the courage to admit how the whole incarceration thing came about and we simply have not had the courage to really look at the 13th amendment i mean really really look at what the 13th amendment says the 13th amendment abolishes slavery all right we know that and it says involuntary servitude is prohibited except for what except for what for lawful imprisonment you see what i'm saying lawful imprisonment words to those effect so what happened is and I, i'm sure i'm preaching to the choir here 
when we could no longer condone slavery in its purest form, you all know about the black codes, you know, and Jim Crow and that, but the advent of criminal laws to do in reality what slavery was outlawed from doing, and that is imprisoning people. You know, the chain gang was created for black folks, okay? The chain gang was created for black folks because when you look at the chain gang, what they did, those people went out early in the morning, they did all kind of sharecropping work, uh, you know, building roads, whatever the prison wanted them to do, they did. And, and, and that is a form of slavery. So the first thing we as a people need to understand, we do have involuntary servitude. That is a quintessential definition of slavery, involuntary servitude. But we have it now under the guise and rubric of laws and penitentiaries. So the other problem is, after we acknowledge the advent of laws, which really were developed primarily to keep black folk in line, okay, really to be honest about it, the advent of the Second Amendment, which really never included black people. Black folks, when the Second Amendment was enacted, they were never intended to have guns, ever, ever, okay? So the, the whole concept of, well, we need guns to protect the nation from the British, well, they need a gun to protect themselves from black folk too. Okay, see, that's what, that's what that, that all was about. And the establishment of a militia. We all know the advent of militias were originally slave catchers. You know that. You know that. That's, that's the purpose of the militia. We all know the advent of what we can now call police, originally slave catchers. You know that. So now, until we as a people acknowledge the genesis of, of, our, of our penal system, the genesis of our laws, the existence and expansion of white supremacy, um, we will never ever honestly address the issue of prison reform or prison abolition because most people continue to hide behind the rubric of, well, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. In an abstract sense, that's true. But when you have police that focused, which was a big part of my campaign, by the way, in certain neighborhoods in Washtenaw County, you know, uh, you know, uh, south side of Ipsy, when you have more law enforcement focus there than you do, let's say, in, uh, in Chelsea, well, then quite naturally, you're going to get more people that are arrested. It doesn't mean there's more crime or, or wrong going on necessarily in Ipsy than, than Chelsea. It's just a matter of law enforcement, and it's a matter of the discretion that police are given. Another part of my campaign, police are the first arbiters of your rights, all right? They are the first people to determine what rights you have. Well, no, no, Mr. Mack, the courts are. No, they aren't. When that policeman stops you on, on the street, they make a decision what's going to happen with your life right then and there, okay? Whether to pull a gun on you, whether to whip you, whether to spray you with mace, whether to say he's waiting for a gun and blow your head off. They're, they're the ones. So until we realize the advent of supremacy would still exist today from the Constitution on down in the penal system and start to address these public officials, these prosecutors and police, and start putting them in prison. You know, I'm not saying the conversation is academic, but it's hard to move the ball downfield. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. exactly. Um, um, Dr. Mack, I want to go back to something that um, Ali and Ken kind of... Um, talked about a little bit 
about um, the tag word um, reform, criminal justice reform. It became a tag word um, for a lot of people who were running for office. And, um, you know, they ran for office based off of criminal justice reform. And because it meant so much to our communities, um, we uh, gave a listening ear to um, criminal justice. Anyone who said they were running on criminal justice reform or anyone who said anything about criminal justice reform, we were all in. But as we look two, three, four years later, um, do we really have criminal justice reform? Are we really, um, is that really going on right now? We've been talking about qualified immunity, you know, even with the George Ford, um, the whole debacle, we were all in for the George um, Ford bill, but did that really happen? Are we really living in the times that we can say that we're uh, living in criminal justice reform? Can I address that before anybody? Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, so I'm sure that pretty much everybody on this call knows, you know, what we do as an organization, right? Mm -hmm. And I can say in the five, six months that I've been at the helm of the organization, I've seen some change in ways that I never could have imagined, right? Mm -hmm. And when I say change, it didn't come easy and it didn't come willingly, right? But we're forcing our way to the table in rooms that we were locked out of prior. And when I say locked, I mean like dead voted locked. I've been in the room with some of the most conservative Republicans that people can think of face to face and challenging them. Not just Republicans, Democrats, right? Because I, one of the most progressive prosecutors in the state of Michigan, known as, you know, the, the inventor of the terminology, progressive prosecutors. I sat in the room with this person a couple of weeks ago and this person gets up and they're telling the story about how they're about to make all of these changes and they're good for the system and how they're they're going to be better. Right. It's going to make the system better. And I'm sitting there and I listen and had no intention of speaking at this place. None whatsoever. I was just there to observe. And after this person says what they say, I just asked a very simple question and it sucked the entire energy out of the speech. How would you know? How would you know what the consequences of all those decisions are going to look like? You're a 40 year career prosecutor that's been in a suit and tie your entire life. How would you know what it's going to look like on the other end of that decision? You know who you should be talking to? You should be calling me when it's time to make those decisions, because I can tell you what it's going to look like. I can tell you what it's going to look like because I'm the one. I know what it feels like when that 15 minutes runs out on that phone and you're talking to your kid. I'm the one that spent hours on the phone doing homework with my kid because there was no other adult in the house. I'm the person that had to suffer through family loss after family loss. How would you possibly know what it looks like on the other end? You can't. And you know what the response was? We need to talk. We need to have a conversation, right? Because to me, I'm the stakeholder in this situation. Everybody that's making these decisions have never been where I've been. 
right? And it's not just me. There's a group of us. At any given point, I can tag somebody in that can relate to an issue that is being talked about. There were five of us in Missouri. We had more media requests than we could handle. What did I do? I tagged in a guy from Michigan. Take this interview. Next thing you know, the interview was on CNN. Started conversations that we're challenging people. We're challenging people because it's the appropriate thing to do. Just because you say you're progressive or you're for the right thing, how? How can you be for the right thing if you're not talking to the people that's being affected by it? Exactly. And make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it, right? We are for justice, completely for justice. I will stand at a press conference with anybody that's for the right thing. Prosecutor, defense attorney, innocence project, ACLU, it doesn't make me a difference. If you're for the right thing, you have the support of the National Organization of Exonerees. However, if you take a different position, you better believe we're coming for you. You better believe you're going to be a talking point at one of our speeches. You better believe your name is going to be mentioned in the newspaper article. Because it's not fair, not right. And we're calling people out on it. There's a lot of people that don't agree with the things that we've done. But the reality is a lot of the stuff that's being changed right now, that's being talked about right now, is because we're screaming it. We're the ones talking about coronavirus inside of the prisons. We're the ones talking about why I came home with no ID. They're kicking us out of prison with no vital documents to no fault of our own. And I'm asking that question in a room with these public officials. You took my ID from me when you took me to prison. So why didn't you give it back to me when you let me go? Why do I have to fight the system to reprove who I am as if I've done something wrong to you? I didn't do nothing to deserve it. You're right. And I agree with you because when my son came home, he had no ID. He had no social security card. And guess what? He needed health care because he suffered from severe Crohn's disease before he went inside. And all the fighting I had to do while he was inside to get him health care, he comes home with no insurance. So, you know, he's he needs these infusions. He needs health care. So now he's racking up doctor bills. Nobody gave him his insurance back. He was actually... He was um, social security disability because of his health. So you would think he went there with that. Why nobody help him get that back? And so when he comes home, he doesn't have to rack up thousands of dollars of bills. So you're right. These are the conversations that these people who are crying about how they're being so reformative should be having with people who are closer to the problem. Then, um, so because they're the ones that's closer to the solution. Dynamic, there's like been a lot of changes because of what we've been doing. Uh, Michelle Fisher in the chat right now is saying that because we came home, you know, several of us screaming about this vital document issue, that now they're doing something about it within the institutions. Now they're ordering birth certificates and social security cards. And when you go home within two weeks, your, your state ID is in the mail. That wasn't how it was in February when I came home. It took me three months to get a birth certificate. I almost went to jail standing in front of the city county building because they wouldn't let me in and I refused to leave until I got a birth certificate. That wasn't the process, but what did we do? We hammered and hammered and hammered until somebody finally heard us. And now the entire MDOC is getting vital documents ordered and placed in their files. So this problem again. Yeah. 
But you know, um, you, Ken, you're saying that, and and before you came home, and and Gerard came home in January last year, they were talking about this whole thing how they were going to have that all done, but everybody used COVID as their excuse of not getting things done. Go ahead, Allie. I was just going to agree that uh, we are in a era of reform. We are in a time of reform. <laughs> I mean, me, me too. I haven't seen, there's things I thought I never would see if I'm being quite honest. Um, 2020 was a year of so many new things and it was a lot to deal with just mentally. And just, it was just a lot to take in. I'm seeing cities that are Republican, are primarily white, that, our sundown towns like Livonia, I'm seeing there was a protest in Howell. When would you ever think that would happen? <laughs> um, places like Livonia are stepping up and have Black Lives Matter groups, Dearborn. You're seeing other suburban areas, Rochester and, and more that are, you know, at the forefront. You're seeing people go to their local government and question these things, question different proposals that lead people to prison. That is real. People are addressing things locally now. I'm seeing people address um, their city charter documents that would that govern the documents that, you know, they follow to see how the city is going to be ran. I'm seeing people look into that and like actually know what it is. <laughs> This is not something that people were doing prior, not young people, especially. I have not seen that and I'm seeing that now. You know, there's there's city charter documents that haven't been revised since 1982, Pontiac, Michigan, I believe. So there's things like that that are now being revised. And that isn't the only place. Mm -hmm. So we are living in an era of reform. And yeah, I just hope it keeps going. It has to. All right. So when we just we're talking about reform and then we're talking about abolitionists, and I want to go back to um, Mr. Donnell Ishmael. Is there anything uh, with the current system that we should save or we should keep? <clears throat> Is it worth saving? I think um, to to be quite honest and straightforward, absolutely yes. There are things and components, or artifacts, if you will, of what we've come to know as the American penal system that we should definitely save and preserve and keep and put on display. And those things are like the testimonies of people like the exoneree Kenneth Nixon who are here. We need the testimonies of all those who have served we need to know about their life. We need to know about what happened to them. We need to digitize it. We need to mediatize it. We need to pass that information to our children and our children's children. We need to memorialize it so that we never repeat it. Mm -hmm. History is a very important thing. For, for me, that's what needs to be saved. The institution itself, what it's doing, how it's functioning, no but what it has done to the lives of those who have gone that way. We need that testimony. We need to have that evidence so that it goes to future generations. And it needs to go in ways that's flexible and malleable 
and accessible to everyone. I don't think that there's anything else, I could be wrong, worthy of saving from such an institution that at the heart of it, it's been corporatized. Um, there's maybe more than 7 million people that are in prison today. Some percentage of them is doing labor for corporate America. Even if it's just, say it's just one out of every seven, that's a million people that's doing free labor basically for corporate America. Um, the, the, those people are not gonna go against their own interest. Uh, they're not gonna go, they're not gonna go against what helps to line their pocket, that helps to keep them uh, afloat in a financial kind of a way. Um, just like our ancestors helped build this, this, this place we call America. America was built on free labor mm -hmm. and it is still being buoyed in certain regards uh, economically by this apparatus called the American penal system. There are certain communities in these hamlets and outlying places where that is the main source of income. Everybody works for the prison. And some senator so-and-so or congressman, this one and that one, got the prison built in their backyard. Um, and it has changed things economically for that. Changed things That They did that for their own interest. And when we talk about reform, I think we do have to reach for, if, if, if it's just gonna be reform and reform only, absent of abolition. Mm -hmm. At the point of abolition, that's where we stop. All right, well, fine. What is that point? What is the superlative of reformation of this, what we call the prison system? Let's reach for that superlative. Um, but again, I'm, I'm an abolitionist and I used to be I used to be an activist. I used to be a reformist. And then I became an abolitionist because someone got in my ear and they got in my spirit and they helped me to understand we really have no need as a human people. We have no need for that particular beast of a system and we need to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So I would, <laughs> almost sound like Paul, I would that we all become abolitionists. <laughs> um, and sh and sh and shed ourselves of reformist only. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only part is what what bothers me. Um, like in, you know, there's going to be people who are reformist abolitionists. There's just because of the system we live in and how everybody was raised, we affected by it. So there's going to be different perspectives, and that's fine. But we got to stop shutting out. Um, you know, those that are reformists, I know, I know to shut out abolitionists or people that say defund, you know, why are you shutting people out? Isn't that valid to, to want something to be abolished that's harming people a lot? Like, I don't, I don't see why it's the shutout is happening. And we need to start having conversations with each other to change this system because it's, it's harming people daily. Like it's life or death. Like, I don't see why that happens. That is not necessary. Right. So um, when we're um, talking about reforms and 
um, the reason some of the it's hard for them to happen, or we get so much um, flack about reforms, is because of all the money that's involved. So um, almost half of the money spent on running a correctional system goes to paying the staff, the group. This group is inter interventional lobby that sometimes prevent reforms and whose influence is often protected when prisons populations drop. The government payroll for corrections employees is over a hundred times that of private prisons, industrial profits. So money often gets in the way of reform. And then we look at the bail bonds companies. These are things or companies and um, Mr. Darnell Ismail, you was talking about that, that get in a way of reform, bail bondsmen, um, corporations that, you know, that give foods and feed the prisoners. What's that? 2.3 million people, a population larger than 15 different states. Feeding prisoners is expensive. So, you know, when we're talking about reform, um, just, you know, talking about those things like that, it gets in the way you, you have stakeholders that don't want you to, um, talk about reform or not even interested in form, reform because now you're getting in their pockets. When we talk about private companies that supplies goods to prisons, um, phone companies, commissary vendors, these people are... <laughs> in the way of reform. They don't want reform. They want to continue to make that money. <laughs> I'll say this. I mean, if if there was money in in I'm sorry, I think I cut you off, Ken. Please. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll go after. I'll say it very quickly. If there was more money on this side of it mm -hmm. and people understood how to privatize this, that, and the other and make money on this then everybody would be saying, oh, yes, let's get that money out of the prison system and have it on this side. And I think we need those kind of solutions at the table. And I don't know what that means. Ken may have more uh, a possibility of reaching those people because he's he's in a different circle than I. OK, <laughs> but I think that there, there needs to be the conversation about, OK, this is how money can be made on this side of it. Right. So let's get this. Let's let's just make that happen over the next 10, 15 years. Right. Go ahead, Ken. I, I think what, what we're all hinting around at right now is, I mean, let's be clear. Let's be honest. Right. There's been dynasties built around prisons. Yeah. Right. There's <laughs> at dynasties, family dynasties that will last for several generations built off of private privatization of certain prisons you know there's a lot that society doesn't understand about how the prison system works everything is privatized within the institutions the phone system the jpay system the mail process the food the health care everything is run by a private company except the security guards that are holding it up but there's so much politics involved in what's happening darnell hinted at it earlier Yes, there are institutions built in places within the state of Michigan where the entire growth of that community depends on that prison being open. You've got places, Ionia, Michigan, where there's four or five prisons. 
St. Louis, Michigan, there's four or five prisons. The UP, the entire economy of the Upper Peninsula is held up by the prison system. Mm-hmm. When they close a prison up north, those people freak out because they have no idea how they're going to eat. But when mm-hmm. human, the decisions that are being made for human lives rest on the dollar value that you have, you create a totally different circumstance, a totally different circumstance, because now you're running this industry off of a spreadsheet. Snyder tried to run Michigan off of a spreadsheet and we got a Flint water crisis because of it. Mm-hmm. You can't dictate how people's lives are run off of a spreadsheet. Humans are not business. This is why we have the industries that we do. A lesser known fact about private prisons that go on in the federal system. There's a part of that contract that's negotiated with the government that says the government has to keep that institution 80 to 90 percent full at all times. So you know what that tells people? You have to send people to prison in order to keep that number up or you'll be Mm -hmm. penalized financially for it. These are the lesser known facts that not everybody knows about, but it's true. Look it up. It can be verified. And you have people that are profiting off the backs of things that it just shouldn't happen. The MDOC, part of their mission statement is rehabilitation and keeping the family connected. How can my family stay connected when I'm paying $15 for a phone call? I got to choose between whether or not I'm going to eat this week or I'm going to call my kid. Mm-hmm. That's a hell of a decision to have to make when you have to yeah. suffer. Somebody's not going to make it. There's five major things that you need to survive inside the institution. And I promise you, on a day-to-day basis, something gets sacrificed because you can't afford to handle it all. There's no way for you to be able to sustain all five on a regular basis every day. Somebody's not going to get called. You're not going to eat something. You're going to suffer through a health issue. You might not be able to write somebody a letter or send back a JPay message. Something is going to get sacrificed because you have no other choice. And you have to pick between the lesser of several evils in order to make your day safe and accountable. You have to be able those are decisions that not everyday people can really understand. And when it comes to tearing down the institutions, again, you know, there's so much stuff that, that happens behind the scenes. Little known fact, when coronavirus is going on, correctional officers, correctional staff were paid an extra $750 every two weeks just to show up to work. So you have to give somebody an incentive to show up to work. And I remember having a conversation with an officer and she defended this position that she deserved that extra $750 every two weeks. And my question was, why do you feel like you deserve it more than that kid that's working in the gas station to make sure you're eating? Or make sure, you know, the kid that's working in the grocery store, making sure the shelves are stocked. So when you leave here from this exorbitantly paid job to go and find you something to eat tonight, that kid that's making $15 an hour and barely making it, he has to go to his job because that's the only way he can eat. But you get a $750 bonus to do what you're asked to do on a regular basis. Make that make sense to anybody. That nurse that has to go into this institution on a regular basis and suffer through whatever illnesses that people might bring them, they weren't getting $750 every two weeks. The people that held up the economy and made sure that everybody was able to survive didn't get that 750 but yet these overpaid babysitters got an extra $1,500 a month to come to work and sit around and do nothing. 
But they did something. They brought COVID in. <laughs> That's what they did. They, they did. brought in. They brought in the COVID. Because um, yeah. where else did it come from? But that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother week. <laughs> but I I I agree absolutely with everything you said because there were kids that was working at Kroger's, you know, a few people died, you know, and they didn't get extra money to go in Kroger's to keep that grocery store open so you can go and get your food. So I agree. Attorney Hugo Matt. There were people way more deserving than corrections officers, that's for sure. Okay. Unmute yourself, Attorney Hugo Matt. All right. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. All right, well, you can hear me now. Hi. It seems like you can hear me now. How you like me now? Okay, so we're, we're doing that. So look here, look here. As a practitioner, for me, it's another dimension in terms of reform and and abolition. Another thing that I think people don't discuss enough, and that is the collateral consequence of a conviction and incarceration. All right. So let's say somebody is convicted of. Uh, breaking and entering, what have you. Now they get, let's say, a 5 to 15 year sentence, okay? So let's say they serve 10 years, what have you, okay? Get out, complete parole, two years. Now, they on paper, on paper, have paid their debt to society. You understand what I'm saying? They serve their time. Their debt has been paid to society. But the consequence of that conviction will haunt that person for the rest of their life. In the state of Michigan, you got a felony conviction, you can't sit on a jury. I don't care if you come out to penitentiary and become a mixture of the Pope, Gandhi, King, whoever, all mixed together. The fact that Darnell has a felony conviction in Michigan will keep that man off a jury. Not because they've shown him to be morally deficient, not because they've shown the man is a derelict, is homeless, uh, is, is selling drugs to kids. They will relate to that man back when, whenever, the 60s, whenever that conviction was, and say, you are automatically disqualified. Whereas a person who has done a whole bunch of wrong, they just haven't got caught up in the system. You know, wife abuser, pedophile, a drug dealer. Okay, all those negative sorts of things, they will gladly embrace them on the jury as qualified and eschew myself, uh, having a penitentiary experience myself. So one thing with me as an attorney, I can pick a jury, but I can't sit on one. How ironic is that? You talk about holding something against someone for a debt that has been long paid. So for me, when I'm in, in court and I'm arguing in terms of sentences or, or reductions or fighting for personal liberty in front of a jury, I'm thinking about the collateral consequence when that person gets out of prison. Like I said, they can't sit on a jury. They'll be discriminated in where they live. They'll be discriminated in the job they have. They'll be discriminated in education. They'll be discriminated in terms of transportation. 
All those things will follow them. And don't think you'll escape that by leaving the state of Michigan. You know, all they need to do is punch in your social security number or your name. And guess what? All that stuff will follow you forever. So for me, when I look at the need for, for prison reform or, or, or abolition, part of it also goes with reforming and abolishing some of these laws that continue to penalize a person long after their debt has been paid. I can't. I can't hear anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me? Okay. Daniel, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, I just I, I will concur uh, with everything that uh, I, I'll have to say this now. My brother Hugo Mac Epsilon Chapter um, <laughs> Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I've never met him before, I, I, but I get to meet him here in, yeah. in this venue. So I, I am delighted um, that he is doing this work and and his his legacy speaks for itself. Um, <clears throat> I, I concur with everything that has been said. Um, my my point I would like to make, I think, is is where do we go from here? Um, yeah. How do we move the needle? As Ken has been talking about, you know, they're out there doing the work of actually literally moving the needle on these things. And history certainly is our guide in some respects. There are some things that would have never happened in America. <clears throat> in the 50s and the 60s regarding the civil rights movement, had it not been for the American news showing the entire world what was mm -hmm. happening to this humanity here in the States. When the world saw it, America was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. America was shamed and it put them in a certain moral, position where they had to do something. And then we have our civil rights legislations, etc. There needs to be that same type of critical mass outcry as it regards these, these issues that are being raised by Brother uh, Attorney Hugo Mack and Exoneree Kenneth Nixon. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be the publication in every form I remember during the Corona thing, we were putting, we, you know, notes from the village, we started doing these podcasts and we would mm -hmm. receive a phone call from those who are on the inside. They would give us their testimony. We'd record it and then we'd post it on YouTube. And we try to get people to, hey, this is what's going on. I remember there was an incident in Louisiana where one of the gentlemen who was on the other side of the wall, he had a phone and he took his phone and he showed America what was going on. And then two or three days later, it, we didn't see those images no more. It was a blackout. Mm -hmm. They got rid of that. And you'd be hard pressed to probably find it even today on the internet. How do we create 
within what I call the subterranean community. That is the community that is well below grassroots. How do we bring up the truth from that subterranean community as that young man did in Louisiana when he was saying, this is my friend and he's dying from COVID. This is what's happening in the cell and America blacked it out. How do we create that sense of groundswell? Because I'll, I'll say this to reiterate what I said when I was invited here before, how do you turn a movement, a moment into a movement, a moment into a movement? That whole word, moment, moment, momentum, we've got to have the momentum. Mm -hmm. It can't just be a muscularized exercising of, uh, of what we feel our rights are. We have to have something, a wind behind us. There has to be a momentum that comes. And I believe that will happen when we really go wholesale for the superlative and when we really go wholesale in terms of publicizing what's going on. And again, I, I applaud your platform and what you have done to keep this uh, voice in front of the people. Um, and I, I really hope that more uh, will see this and be encouraged by this and that we'll create that groundswell and that momentum that changes lives. Yes. Can, I want to answer that question real quick. Let me okay. answer that question before you go. <laughs> how, how do we turn this how do we turn this moment into a movement i can I, the blueprint is right in front of us all we do it together and we control the narrative yes. as long as what's happening we control what's being said about us come on man the reason that you remember that louisiana case is because he was controlling the narrative the institution didn't tell you what was happening he showed you what was happening we control the narrative as long as we dictate what's being said about us you can't go wrong that's what's made us so successful in our exoneree movement, because we're controlling what's being said about us. The news right. isn't saying it. The institutions aren't saying it. The Innocence Project isn't speaking for us. The Conviction Integrity Unit isn't speaking for us. We're controlling what's being said about us. That's the reason we've been so successful at challenging people. We're controlling it. When you step away and you allow other people to control what's being said about you or how you move, that's when you lose control of that moment. This is how we dictate turning this from a moment into a movement. We do it together and we control what's being said. If there's a politician that is not siding with the people and he's voted out after a first term, it puts everybody else in Congress on notice. Why? Because we control the outcome. If we didn't like what he did, we got rid of him. And you're next if you continue down this path. Control what's happening. We don't have control. Yes, um, Revitia talks about that report card. <laughs> you know, you give them a gray F, you out of here. But that's why we're here turning the moment into a movement because I felt so deep about telling the story, owning your story, you know, not let somebody else tell your story because once somebody tell someone else tells your story, now they're controlling the whole entire narrative. That's what um, Ken said. We have to tell our own stories. We have to um, build our own platforms. That's what um, Sam Riddle, when he came, when we came back and he came on here with us, he said we need to have a 24-hour, you know, news type of situation going on all day long where we're owning our stories. 
We're telling our stories. We're educating our communities because that's how we get unity and that's how we win. We organize, we win. We educate, we win. Attorney Hugo Matt. <laughs> Unmute yourself. <laughs> Once again, I continue to be embarrassed. So, you know, much, much respect, Brother Darnell and uh, bro Brother Kenneth and, and our leader, Jay Love. I love you, Jay Love. Ain't, ain't nothing you can do about it. You know, and, 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 and see, and see, and the thing of it is, I wholeheartedly agree with everything, you know, but I also want you to know one man or woman can make a difference. Yeah, you know, yeah. see, it got to the point where they were killing so many Christians, all right, you know, in the arena, killing so many Christians because they kept stepping up and stepping up and stepping up. And it got to the point eventually where they say, this has got to stop. It got to the point, and I'm not trying to proselytize anybody, but it got to the point where even the emperor himself, after Jesus, took about 300 years after Jesus had been crucified, became a Christian himself, you understand? So what I'm saying is, all of us are that one irritant. You know you know how pearls are made. You get a grain of sand inside an oyster, all right? And in response to that grain of sand, those secretions that oyster pulls out, pushes out to cover that grain of sand, is something we know as a pearl, okay? See, that's how oysters are. So each and every one of us has got the God-given ability and spirit to be that irritant. Look, I will be with y'all as long as I can, but I tell you, when they rise up against me in court, the judges get mad, they pound on that table, charge me with contempt, whatever it is, I might be writing y'all from prison the way King did or whatever, but it don't matter because I've seen the end of it and I know God brought me back from hell to do this job. So I love you. I'm glad. I'm so honored to be here. And so y'all keep on speaking that voice because at the end of the day, we're not only going to have one pearl, we're going to have a string of pearls. All right. And it's called liberty, you know? Yes. yes. Thank you. All right, you guys. I want to thank you guys for joining us. Um, is there anything you guys want to, um, Ken, is there something you want to close with? Ken, can you hear me? Do you want to close with anything? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it, there's a, that old famous saying, you got to be the change that you want to see. Change starts mm -hmm. at home. You know, if you want. If I see something different, you got to show something different. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. You lead by example. You know, kids are watching you. The next generation of people are watching you. The, the the policy makers are watching you. You know, there's a lot that needs to be done, but it requires action. You know, just all talk it doesn't help anybody. You know, the the instigators, the agitators, the best ones are the ones that actually follow it up with something. Yes. As a group, we as an organization, you know, we stand on firmly stand on it. We don't always agree with each other, with each other, but we support each other. When one of us says there's an event going on, I'm gonna be here. It's very highly unlikely that you'll see us individually somewhere. It's highly unlikely that you'll see us in singular fashion anywhere. 
there's whether it's an event, a birthday party, a baby shower, whatever it is, you know, we move accordingly because it's important that we stand together. It's important to me. It's important to us as a group. It's important to us as an organization. We represent, we represent change. When people think about criminal justice reform and the pitfalls of what criminal justice reform should look like, we are an example of it. For the people that don't believe this stuff is true and that it doesn't happen in today's society, we are a living, walking, talking testimony of what injustice looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you for joining us, Ken. Uh, again, I wanted to say, you know, I'm so glad to see you. Um, I was with your mom and, you know, we were fighting <laughs> for, you know, you guys and um, <laughs> you and Gerard and others, you know, um, we were out here um, screaming about wrongful convictions. So I'm so glad that you were able to join us and I'm so glad that you're, you know, doing what you're doing and um I support you guys. So thank you for joining us and enjoy Africa. <laughs> um, so um, I'm definitely enjoying it. I appreciate <laughs> you giving me the opportunity. Yes. Um, Danielle, do you have anything you want to leave us with? Um, I'll just very quickly say this. There is a national organization by the name of Abolition Apostles. Mm-hmm. And I want to put this plug in. You can look them up. Uh, abolitionapostles.com, less than probably 20 months old, if you will, um, started by a, a, a couple living in uh, New Orleans, uh, David and Sarah, great friends of mine. They began at their kitchen table corresponding to about 10 people. And now they've grown that uh, organization to cover about 3,000 persons who are incarcerated with the structure of chapters in about 37 states and with a volunteer base of over 1,500 people. And those two as a couple, what you were saying, Brother, Brother Mac, um, as a couple at their kitchen table, as a ministry, they have far reaching tendrils throughout the entire nation now doing the work of abolition. So there is a thrust, a great uh, momentum, I hope would be a, become a tidal wave of people, young people and old that want to see this system dismantled, de- demolished, uh, divested um, and deplored, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and gotten rid of, um, discarded. Join us, join us. I know that uh, this, this coming Sunday, if you're in the Midwest, there is a meeting on Zoom, um, it'll, talk about how to get involved with the work of abolition. There is probably a chapter in your state, if you're hearing this broadcast, please go to abolitionapostles.com. And again, thank you so very much for having me on tonight. Thank you. Yeah, we change is necessary. And we have to disrupt and dismantle these um, systems that have oppressed us. It's time for something new. It's time for something better for not only us, for us, but for those who are coming behind us. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll see everyone next week. Um, Thank you.